Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery and today I'm excited to have Jay Gibson, uh, who's the founding partner of Better Tomorrow Ventures, an early stage venture fund focused on building the future of fintech uh, prior to Better Tomorrow Ventures, uh, Jake had co-founded Nerd Wallet, a site dedicated to helping consumers make better decisions with their money. Uh, welcome to the show, Jake. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. So, you know, uh, you you have a really interesting journey. You you started uh, your journey with uh, Wall Street uh, and then you, uh, you know, quit your job. Uh, but what what got you really interested to get into, into the world of startups? Yeah. Um, so I guess there's kind of two tracks here. I... Um, I've had kind of a, a, a deep passion for both money and finance, as well as technology from a very young age. I mean, some of my um, formative memories um, on kind of the money and finance side of things. Uh, like I, I didn't grow up particularly well off. My parents were divorced when I was very young and, and I grew up with my mom uh, while my dad was more or less like not in the, not in the picture. Um, I remember at a very young age going into my mom's bedroom and uh, she was crying because she couldn't afford to pay the bills. And, you know, this was something that we struggled with through, through most of my childhood and um, kind of led me, it, it basically kind of made money like a central topic to me from a very young age. And, you know, when I got really into math, I naturally wanted to apply that to like thinking about money. And when I got into MIT, kind of went on a dual track where I was studying math and finance. And that eventually led me to wall street and kind of a lot of my subsequent things. And then at the same time, while, you know, I alluded to the fact that my dad wasn't really part of my life. The few times that he did manage to kind of drop in and spend time with me, he got me really into computers. It was like the one thing that, uh, it's the one thing that he did. Um, so from got like single digits, I mean, I was probably like six, seven, eight, nine years old, kind of in that ballpark when we were have building PCs from scratch back before, like, you know, we didn't even have a have hard drives half the time. You'd have to boot everything from a five and a quarter inch floppy disk. And um, there's no operating system or anything for the most part. We're working off of like MS DOS and then eventually learning QBasic. And I just got so obsessed with computers. And then my mom was able to get me onto like Prodigy and CompuServe and AOL and the early kind of internet things. And that just kind of, blew the doors off for me and really opened my eyes. So, um, uh, in addition to kind of finance being kind of a central theme to all of my life, like technology and software and the internet and being able to create things from nothing has kind of always been there as well. I actually went to MIT with the intention of studying computer science, getting into the tech industry, but the internet bubble burst. And, um, you know, I was seeing all these investment banks showing up on campus that were still recruiting. And so ended up, kind of focusing more on the math and finance side of things. And, and then, like I said before, ending up on wall street. Um, then I came full circle after the financial crisis, when I decided to leave JP Morgan, uh, it's a great learning experience being through the financial crisis in a seat like that. But at the same time, um, I hated wall street. <laughs> um, and, and didn't really love the culture. I didn't feel like I was learning and growing. I didn't feel like I was building anything of value and, Meanwhile, I was watching like friends of mine from college starting all these awesome companies and I'm spending half my time on the trading floor, like 
on my new iPhone, like flipping through TechCrunch rather than paying attention to the markets and kind of realized that it was time to go. So I ended up um, leaving Wall Street uh, at the beginning of 2010 with the intention of kind of setting up shop in Silicon Valley and, and getting involved in the tech world. Um, yeah. Very interesting. And, you know, you, you mentioned that you uh, you had a stand with JP Morgan Chase. You went on to, uh, you know, become a senior uh, person over there, like a uh, vice president. Uh, you know, uh, a, a lot of listeners are, uh, are looking to leave the jobs and, you know, build their own businesses. What advice would you give to them when, you know, you have a high paying job and you have your bills to pay and responsibilities to to take up? But uh, how should how should they take up the next career jump uh, because it was a big shift. Uh, you, you're starting nerd wallet. Uh, what, what advice would you give to them? Um, I'll say like having a high paying job is a very fortunate position to be in. <laughs> um, most people who hear this won't be able to act on the kind of advice that I would give. But, um, my view was like, you know, on wall street, there's this kind of long running joke that, uh, everybody has a number like capital N. So like once you hit that number, you'll leave because nobody who works on wall street is doing it for fun. They're all doing it for the money. And so there's some amount of money, presumably that you'll make where eventually you'll just move on and, and not stay on wall street. The, the, the joke though, is that the number goes up every year. And so you just end up staying forever. Um, and it's true. There's a lot of kind of what they call the hedonic treadmill, like light your life accelerates your lifestyle accelerates kind of ahead of the curve. And so I, I would be sitting across the table at dinners and stuff like that with these people that were complaining about like living paycheck to paycheck or like, you know, so-and-so isn't paying me enough. And I'm like, you just got through telling me you have a house in the Hamptons, like a condo in Manhattan. You have four kids in private school. You have like two Range Rovers and you pay your, and this was like the most hilarious part. They talk about paying their wives $10,000 a month in allowance or something like that and complaining about it. Like, go to hell. Like, <laughs> like that's yeah. your fault. Like, you know, um, yeah. and so my, my view on all this was at, like, for me, my number went actually went down every year, which is why I actually left eventually, you know, everybody that I worked with, uh, thought I was absolutely insane when I left. Like I was on a great desk, you know, I was on track probably the year after I left, it probably would have made a million dollars. And, mm-hmm. um, And so, and I was leaving for basically nothing. Like I was going to, you know, it wasn't a thing back in 2010 startups weren't nearly as kind of popular and part of the zeitgeist as they are today. So everybody I worked with were like, your boss loves you. You have the potential to make a ton of money. You're at a great bank on a great seat and you're leaving it to go do basically nothing. (laughs) Mm. But for me, it was just that like, it wasn't worth staying anymore. My number just went down every year and eventually across the threshold, it was time to go. Um, And and to my advice for anybody else is just like, keep your lifestyle reasonable, like stay behind the curve, not ahead of the curve um, and save your money. Because basically, you know, I didn't have that much money when I left JP Morgan, but I had a lot more than most people. And I figured my wife and I had probably two, two and a half years of runway uh, for me to just go figure my life out. Um, And I was, you know, this is also, it's very risky. Like I was perfectly willing to burn all that runway if I had to, um, in order to build a new life and kind of start from scratch. Um, and I, <laughs> and then, uh, 
thankfully I had a friend who was much smarter than me who was starting what would become NerdWallet, and I kind of just jumped on and grabbed onto his coattails and rode that. But we went two years without paying ourselves. So, um, uh, it was a, it, it was a real risk. Got it. And, uh, 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 you know, you you started uh, Nerd Wallet, but did you start it uh, on the site, or did you leave the uh, leave your job? And you know, how did the whole uh, you know uh, story start with uh, Nerd Wallet? Yeah, it was after I left JP Morgan. Um, I was basically just like helping Tim out part time. So Tim and I, we've known each other since eighth grade and uh, good friends. We were kind of partners in crime on a bunch of stuff that we did in high school. Um, and he had left his wall street job in 2008 as well and started kind of tooling around with this idea that would become nerd wallet. Then originally my thought was like, well, Tim's staying in New York. I'm moving to California. I'm going to help him out on some stuff. Like it'll help me learn, help me figure out what I want to do with my life. Cause like when I left JP Morgan, I literally had no plan. It was just, I'm going to move to California and figure it out. Um, but I loved working with Tim and I was learning a lot and I was getting to code again for the first time in six and a half years or something. And, um, really felt like we were, I don't know. We just, it felt like we were doing something important and I found myself working like 13, 14, 15 hours a day and just not even blinking an eye because it was just, all of it was so interesting. Um, and so I just jumped on full time. And initially it was, you know, I moved to California, he stayed in New York and we were kind of thinking of it as like a lifestyle company. Um, figured we'd maybe get it up to like one or $2 million in revenue. And then we could live pretty comfortably off of that or sell the company, collect the proceeds and go start something else. Um, that was the extent of our ambition at that time. We had no idea what we were going to end up building and, and, and didn't even see ourselves as like kind of typical Silicon Valley tech founders, you know, like, went to school with, with Drew from Dropbox. Like we, we knew we were not in that echelon <laughs> and we're not trying to build that. Like we just wanted to do something interesting and, and uh, do something impactful and maybe make a little bit of money in the process. And, uh, and fortunately, you know, I stayed on and, and uh, I mean, thanks largely to, to Tim. I was able to hold on long enough to, <laughs> it, it worked out. Got it. And, uh, you know, you've been, you've been part of nerd wallet, which is a, you know, per, a personal finance company. Uh, and you know, what, what, what do you think is the ideal investment portfolio? How much, uh, money would you recommend, uh, you know, putting into high risky investments like cryptocurrency and angel investing, especially to, you know, after what has happened with COVID, uh, do you, do you believe in, uh, you know, higher risk, uh, assets for, for younger people, uh, who would want to, you know, grow their assets? I am probably one of the single worst people to ask for, for like actual investment advice, actually. So similar to how, when I left JP Morgan, I had basically just planned to burn all my savings to start my next phase of life. When I left nerd wallet, um, I knew that I wanted to build a new life and a new career for myself again. And I basically invested 80% of my net worth <laughs> in, uh, and like high risk illiquid assets. Um, I and mean, with the exception of like buying a house, everything else was, I mean, cause that's illiquid, but not, you know, maybe not as high risk. Um, everything else was just high risk, illiquid investments. I invested in VC firms. I invested it or VC funds. I invested in startups. Um, 
a few like kind of hedge fund ideas that were related to the fintech ecosystem. Um, and basically leverage the little bit of capital that I had to build the network and the track record and the reputation and everything that would eventually go on to helping me start a fund. So I've always just viewed capital as a tool. I think largely because I didn't grow up with any money. I don't have like an emotional connection to the money. I feel like if I'm not using the money to do something important, it's not relevant. Um, and so uh, my whole thing has always just been to like take the money that I have. And I mean, now I have kids and stuff and I have to think about it a little bit differently, but I'm still much more aggressively invested than any financial advisor would ever advise you. I think for your average person off the street, like just stick it all in passive ETFs and don't think about it because the problem is you're not going to think about it most of the time. And you're not going to outperform the market if you're not spending 24 hours a day thinking about the market. And Frankly, you probably have much more interesting things to do with your time. Like, I actually, I had a buddy texting me over the weekend. It was like, um, you know, should I invest? Like, uh, I'm going to sell some of my startup equity. <laughs> like, what should I do with the money? Valuations seem really high. Like, do I invest it all now? Do I wait? Do I put it in Wealthfront for the tax loss harvesting? Or do I put it in like a Vanguard target retirement fund? And I was like, look, dude everything that you're describing is basically like an optimization. All that matters is like put the money somewhere. <laughs> like at the end of the day, like the extra basis points you're going to earn here and there, like not going to change your life. So like, you know, if you're worried about the valuations and it's going to like keep you from sleeping at night to just dump all the money into the market today, like just do it in phases over time, like invest a little bit at a time. Like it's more about managing your psychology than managing your money at the end of the day. So like, do whatever's going to help you sleep at night. Just put it in whatever's easiest to manage. Also, like if you have to have accounts all over the place that are doing like tax, all, sorry, all this other stuff, and you're just trying to like clip a few extra basis points, just find a cheap Vanguard place and just stick it all in there and don't think about it again. Like that's the, honestly the best thing you can do. I think most people punish themselves by thinking too much about it because you either like stress yourself out, impacts your life, or you make irrational decisions. And so the best thing is just like do whatever, manage your psychology not, rather than thinking about your money. No, I think, I think you're right. Putting on a Vanguard and, you know, just managing your psychology uh, is, is very important, especially, you know, uh, during the times of COVID and, uh, you know, Jake, you've been into FinTech for such a long time. Uh, what, what do you, what are the major categories in FinTech, which, uh, which you're really interested in, uh, you know, when you look into investing into startups? Yeah, to be honest with you, like it's hard for me to put it into categories because we we invest in everything. Like anything that even ostensibly touches money is in our wheelhouse is the way that we view it. Um, but that said, like one of the trends that we've been tracking for the last couple of years, and it's gotten to the point now where it's like basically a meme. So I'm not going to say anything that nobody here has heard. But um, this whole concept of embedded fintech and lowering the barriers to building and lowering the barriers to access financial products. I think is a huge deal in the same way that, you know, AWS and kind of web development frameworks and various sorts of like database virtualization and stuff like that. Like all these enabling technologies over the last God, 20 years at this point compounded on each other to where like, you don't actually have to be able to write a single line of code to launch a company now. And it costs, yeah. you know, whatever, nine bucks or whatever <laughs> it takes you to get a domain to get a company up. Mailman is a, email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions, and making your days calmer 
and more productive, you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. It's pretty amazing. And that has not been the case in the fintech space because it's just, there's so much legacy infrastructure to deal with and so much regulatory infrastructure and things like that. So now we're starting to see these companies come along that are building APIs to kind of overcome a lot of those challenges and make it much easier and much faster for a company to um, to build and deploy financial products. And so where we see that going is like the last 10 years or so, it's kind of effectively like, it was all in, in the fintech world. It was like all fin with very little tech. You know, the, the tech was just like integrating with all these legacy systems and maybe like a nice little front end on top of it. But really the focus is like, I'm still selling the same product and the same business model as the traditional financial ecosystem, uh, as the traditional banks and insurance companies and stuff. Uh, but now that we have all these APIs and all this infrastructure and all these like interesting new kind of enabling technologies to build upon, we think the future is going to be a lot more about the tech with the fin almost like abstracted away in a lot of sense. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of where we're focusing is like, what does the future of finance look like? Um, and uh, like, how can we focus more on solving unique problems for unique end users rather than building commodity products and just trying to sell them to everybody? Uh, and so that's, that's kind of where we're focused. It's like, how do you take this enabling technology, build much better kind of value-added software and software that solves like real pain points for real users that just also happens to integrate finance in really interesting ways and almost abstracts away like the UX and the UI of those things. So you're not thinking about where's my checking account? Where's my savings account? Where's my auto insurance? You're thinking about, you know, here's my, uh, uh, like here's an app that I use every day to manage my life and I have to pay people through this app and I have to save money in this app and things like that. And it's just kind of automatically uh, built in very similar to how you know, things work with these super apps in like Asia and, 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 and now it's starting to be more of a thing in like Africa and Latin America as well. Um, we think more of that's going to play out here as well. Got it. And, uh, uh, you know, I was, I was wondering which are the major customer segments, uh, which you know, uh, going forward, the fintech companies can can serve. Uh, you know, millennials uh, are a very interesting customer segment. But uh, are there any uh, specific focus on uh, startups? You know, which should uh, serve uh, these customer segments? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of them, um, and I'm not nearly creative enough to come up with them. But like, we already have investments and. Uh, companies that are building kind of interesting software combined with financial services for like small and mid-sized farmers, for example, and small and mid-sized uh, trucking companies, or really just truckers, because it tends to be just like an individual who owns or leases a truck and is running their own trucking operation. Um, and I think there's a lot of segments like that where it's it's a large population. They're not well served by the existing financial services because those tend to try to be like everything for everyone. And so if you can build software that helps them manage their businesses or manage their lives and, uh, in a much better way and tie that directly into the financial services, which also kind of tighten the, tighten the user experience loop and provide a much stronger value proposition, then I think like 
there's gonna be so much legs to that to that theme and so farmers and and uh and truck drivers are, are two that we're already uh we were already invested in and uh another one that we've seen come up quite a bit lately is like healthcare workers so if you look at like nurses and doctors and stuff like that, they have a pretty unique financial situation. Like they do tend to live their lives in a way where they're like essentially poor for a long time. And then just one day they're making a ton of money. <laughs> but at the same time, they financed all those previous years with debt. So they're going to have a lot of like federal student loans, private student loans. I should have kicked him out earlier. Um, but, uh, yeah, healthcare workers have a pretty unique situation because um, they uh, you know, they spend so much of their lives like in school making no money and just accumulating debt, and then one day they wake up and they're making a bunch of money, but now they have to unwind all that debt, um, and then kind of manage how do you start preparing for retirement and things like that with this with this unique situation. Um, so healthcare, and it's also it's a huge population and it's growing incredibly fast. So like that's the perfect segment for where we should be developing a better financial services. Got it. And, uh, you know, I wanted to uh, understand uh, what made you, uh, you know, leave Nerd Wallet and uh, and start, you know, Better Tomorrow Ventures with uh, Shield Minot. Yeah, so that, that was actually a long journey. It wasn't an immediate thing. <laughs> um, so I... Um, when I left NerdWallet, the original impetus was um, my kids were born. Uh, I had twins and didn't think that I could simultaneously manage um, kind of running a, a fast-growing startup as well as kind of being the kind of father that I wanted to be for the two little ones. Um, and so I ended up stepping down uh basically to go home and, and, and take care and spend time with my kids and, and take care of my kids. And, um, it, it just, it also kind of happened to be, you know, NerdWall was at a inflection point in terms of growth. We were able to bring on some really sharp operators that were kind of much better at these things than me to, uh, kind of help lead NerdWall through that phase. Um, and so it was kind of the perfect opportunity for me to step away. Uh, I took a bunch of time off uh, right after that. And then, um, when I was trying to very similar to when I left JP Morgan, like spent a lot of time thinking about, well, what do I want to do next with my life and how do I get there? And like, what advantage do I have? Like when I left JP Morgan, it's like, Oh, I have a little bit of capital. I have runway. So at least I can figure it out. I know I don't want to get into the tech world. When I left nerd wallet, it was kind of similar. I was like, well, I have, I have some money saved up and uh, I don't really know what I, at this point it was like, I don't really know what I want to do. So I'm just going to, use this money to kind of take my time and, and figure it out as I go. And where I landed was actually angel investing. So originally it started out as kind of mentoring and advising early stage startups, helping out friends of mine and stuff. Um, but enjoyed that enough that I decided, well, why don't I kind of start putting my money where my mouth is when I start investing in some of these companies. And that'll also be a forcing function. Like if I'm, if I'm kind of make it my focus to like find great companies and invest in them, that's going to force me to like meet a bunch of people, learn a lot, just kind of generally build this network and build this experience and this track record. And that kind of puts me in position no matter what I decide to do with my life. So like if I decided to start another company, I'd have a much better kind of mental map of what's interesting, what's not interesting, 
uh, you know, I'd know a bunch of other companies, I'd know a bunch of investors, um, uh, and just generally would like know a bunch of operators and other people that might want to work with me on it and stuff like that. I knew that was probably the lowest probability, but was on the list. Or if I decided to join a company and kind of an early stage capacity, uh, similar thing. Like I'd have the network, I'd know the companies, um, I'd know the investors and, and would be in a good position to do that. Similarly, like if I wanted to join a VC firm, if I wanted to start a VC firm, or if I just wanted to keep doing what I was doing and just angel invest forever, then um, I'd be in position for any of those things. I just figured angel investing was the best way to like optimize that or like maximize optionality for these things. Um, and so that's what I opted to do. Um, and I actually ended up doing that for about five years. Um, I invested in about 90 companies over that time. I actually, uh, was, was brought on by index and lightspeed ventures to be a scout for them briefly and kind of wrote some checks on their behalf. So about 30 of those 90 are on, on behalf of those two funds. Uh, and then along the way, as I'm like kind of making the rounds and meeting companies and meeting investors and stuff, I was doing office hours at 500 startups and I met shield. Um, and he was starting a fintech-focused accelerator called 500 Fintech. And loved Shiel, uh, loved what he was working on. Um, actually really loved the companies that he had brought in for his first cohort there. I ended up in, there were six of them. I ended up investing in two of them personally. Uh, and then I ended up investing in the fund. I ended up helping him raise the fund. Uh, I was pretty adamant at the time that I don't want to do this full-time. I don't want to be an employee of 500 startups. Uh, I don't want to limit my optionality, uh, going back to my previous point. But I, I like what you're doing here, and I will help out however I can. And um, uh, did that for you know three years, and uh, like the fund ended up doing very well. And or so far, I mean, story is not fully over. Um, but we're probably one of the highest performing funds in 500 startups history, and maybe one of the highest performing funds of that venture of that um, vintage across the board. Benefiting from the fact it's a very small fund. <laughs> um, it was only fifteen million dollars, uh, and so we we really enjoyed that experience. But you know there were some issues with five hundred startups that came to light in two thousand seventeen. We opted to just deploy the money that we had raised already, not raise any more capital, not do a second fund at five hundred, um, and 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 kind of wind, eventually wind down five hundred fintech and then move on and do our own thing. Um, and after some time kind of deliberating on what our next thing would be, we decided to start a venture capital fund. Um, and like in, 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 in the interim, like we interviewed a bunch of VC firms. We tried to see if there was maybe a place for us out there in the ecosystem already, but kind of ultimately decided that we wanted to do our own thing. Um, like we weren't, we still kind of felt like operators and entrepreneurs at heart and didn't want to get caught up in a lot of the like, politics and stuff that come with larger funds. We wanted to, we wanted to build like we, like we kind of always have done. And so that became better tomorrow ventures. Got it. And, uh, you know, for, for better tomorrow ventures, uh, you know, what is your investment thesis? What do you look for investment, uh, fintech startups when you invest into them, uh, is, you know, market or team, uh, more important, uh, how, how do you evaluate startups? I mean, there's, it's definitely more art than science. So it's, it's hard to, I would say market and team are by far the two biggest things, but it depends on the company. It depends on the market. It depends on the team, which one is more important in any given, in any given deal. Some people seem to tend to draw a hard line of like, if the market's big enough or it's growing fast enough or whatever, it doesn't matter who the team is and vice versa. I, I don't know. I, I tend not to draw hard lines on anything. It just kind of depends on the company. 
but generally speaking, like we invest, like I was saying before, in anything that is anywhere near the financial services world. Um, payments, banking, lending, insurance, real estate, consumer, B2B, uh, you name it. Uh, we've dabbled in crypto in the past, though it's not like kind of a core focus of this fund. Um, but it's only a matter of time, I imagine, before we before we make some crypto investments. Um, and so it's a little bit of everything. And we've also invested in a handful of companies that aren't technically fintech companies. But given some of the trends that I was talking about before with like embedded fintech and um, kind of companies starting to leverage technology to distribute financial products, even if they're not financial services companies at their core, uh, we, we've also invested in a handful of companies that are more like marketplaces or vertical SaaS companies that we think will look more like fintech companies in the future, but aren't today. So it's a little bit of everything. And we're pre-seed and seed. We're typically writing up to one and a half million dollar checks. We're typically looking for at least 10% ownership. Um, and then the reason for that is, like I was saying before, we are operators and entrepreneurs first. When we partner up with a company we like to get involved and help them build. Like we only invest in companies where we would want to be part of the founding team. And we, I mean, to the extent that we can, I mean, we're, we're VCs, we're not founders, uh, or we're not, uh, we're not operators in that sense. Like we try to be instrumental in those early days of helping shorten learning curves and, and accelerate companies, uh, out of the gates. Uh, but really rolling up our sleeves and, and bringing all of our resources to bear to, to make it happen. Um, so one of the things we've learned over the years is when you're writing 25 to 150K checks into companies and you own a tiny piece of the company in exchange for that, it doesn't justify all the, all the time and effort that you're putting in to help those companies grow. And so we've had to, had to kind of be adamant about investing in less companies, but owning more of those companies and being more of a financial partner, but also being able to uh, to be like a, a real operating partner as well. Today, I have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash social pilot to get a 14 day free trial. Okay. And, uh, you know, you made an interesting point about investing into, you know, marketplaces and uh, well, SaaS company as well. But uh, do you think every company, uh, can every company become a FinTech company? <laughs> we do think so. Um, and you're already kind of actually funny enough, the front page of our pitch deck for this first fund back when we kicked it off a couple of years ago was uh, everything is fintech. Um, and, and it's because any company that has a data advantage and a distribution advantage, that means if you have like a relationship with your end users and you're collecting interesting data on them, uh, you kind of have built in distribution and, and you have built in um, like you, you know, enough about them that you can tailor financial services to them, either underwriting loans, underwriting, under, underwriting insurance, or at least knowing like, you know, you need to make payments or you, uh, you know, you, you know, different things about their lifestyle that they can help you with these things. Um, and I mean, if you look at just what's going on in the tech industry more broadly, all of the biggest tech companies are in financial services now. So that just kind of leads me to believe that like, 
kind of all of anyone, anyone who wanted to be, <laughs> could be involved in financial services. Got it. And, uh, you know, uh, when it comes to a team, uh, uh, do you think it's, uh, it's necessary for fintech startups to, uh, to have a team who have experience in, uh, you know, experience in industry, uh, or financial industry. And, you know, like, uh, for example, Stripe and, you know, with Collision Brothers, uh, they do not have any finance experience, but they went on to build one of the world's largest payments company. But uh, do, you, do you look for founders with, uh, you know, fintech or financial experience? Not necessarily. I mean, it helps um, because if you don't have it, you're going to have to hire for it. Um, like Patrick and John didn't start with the finance experience, but those guys also just learn extraordinarily quickly and they hire well. So you can kind of build that muscle yourself. You don't need to, uh, you don't need to come with it. Um, we like to think that we are that muscle for a lot of founders, especially those who don't have the background in financial services. Um, in terms of like helping you build out an early or like helping you figure out where the holes are in the early team, helping you build out the early team, or even just helping you shortcut a lot of those, uh, a lot of those learnings just from our own experience. So like if you're a lending company, there's a bunch of things you're going to need to know before you can lend your first dollar. And you're also going to need lending capital and stuff like that. That's not going to be on your balance sheet. Um, similar with insurance. Like there's a lot of things that you need to know before you can sell your first policy. And you also need, like a fronting carrier, you need reinsurance capacity, stuff like that, uh, to back the policies. And if you're a founder that doesn't know anything about financial services, trying to build a company in this space, like a, you might not know these things and B, you might not have the network to get connected to the right capital providers and stuff like that. We provide a lot of that. And so I think it's a big part of the reason why like having a FinTech focused VC fund is actually valuable and raising money. If you're a FinTech company from a FinTech focused VC fund is valuable because, Fintech is it's like financial services is this whole other world beyond kind of consumer tech or beyond kind of B2B SaaS or whatever. And if you're a generalist investor that hasn't spent a ton of time learning about the intricacies of banking, payments, lending, insurance, and all these other industries, then, then you're kind of at a disadvantage. Got it. And, uh, you know, how, how do you look at uh, founder VC dynamic, especially uh, with so much of capital supply? Uh, uh, do you think uh, the dynamics have totally changed uh, since uh, there's so much of supply? I'd say? Um, yeah, I know that we don't even have time to like even touch the surface on a question like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a huge supply of capital out there. There's a gazillion VCs. There's a gazillion angels. There's also... Now every angel has a rolling fund. And so instead of writing 10 to 25 K checks, angels are now writing hundred K to 500 K checks. And, um, it's, uh, you know, it's made our job a little bit harder because it's a lot more competitive. Now we started this fund with the idea that there just wasn't enough capital going after early stage FinTech companies, at least not the ideas that we thought were most, most interesting. And it was more kind of generalist capital that didn't have the same lens on the space and the same expertise in the space that we did. And so we, we built, or we started better tomorrow, BTV to solve that problem. And now that problem doesn't exist anymore because there's way too much capital. We still think there's, there's not nearly enough people with the right experience investing at the early stages, but there's a lot of great angels out there now that have come out of fintech companies and are backing early stage fintech companies. Um, and then there's a, there's a few other funds like us that are, they're kind of starting to do stuff like this as well. Um, 
so now the challenge is like, well, how do we just prove our worth and, uh, you know, kind of stay disciplined, but also provide as much value as possible to the founders that we back so that we can solidify ourselves as, as the early stage fintech focused fund. Um, it certainly created more of a challenge for us, but it's also like, you know, people talk about things as if what's going on in the financial markets is crazy. I mean, it has been kind of crazy over the last year, but it's also just a continuation of a trend that we've been going through for the last 13 years since the last financial crisis. So who knows if the music is ever going to stop? Like you kind of just have to play the game, uh, the, or play the cards that you're dealt, I guess is another way of putting it and not, not focus too much on that. So that's kind of how we think about it. Um, it does seem like, if you just write fintech on a napkin and you're a founder, you can raise as much money as you want at whatever valuation you want. And that's, I mean, it's great for founders. Um, and I think it's going to be great for innovation in this space. Got it. And, uh, you know, how, how, how do you uh, think about, you know, tech, so, uh, uh, tech exodus, which is going away from Silicon Valley? And, you know, uh, do you think after COVID, uh, it's going to be a fundamental shift where you don't have to be in one ecosystem and, uh, and big companies can come out of anywhere in the world? I mean, I think it's, it's been the case that big companies could come out of any place in the world for, for a while now. Um, there is a strong network effect in Silicon Valley. And maybe that has been weakened a little bit by COVID. But generally, my view is whenever people start pounding the table that like, you know, Silicon Valley is dead or New York is dead or whatever, it's just like, it's always overblown. Um, it's always kind of for the headlines and everything. And, you know, there's a very vocal minority in Miami right now, basically trying to turn Miami into a tech scene. And I think it'll work. Like there's a lot of powerful people there that are pushing that narrative so hard that you're going to drag enough people there to get some things going. Are you going to transplant all of Silicon Valley to Miami or Austin? No, but I think it's good for the world and it's good for the tech ecosystem for these things to be more distributed. You know, it wasn't great for anybody that like 99% of the world's future wealth was going to be built in like a, 40 square mile area here in California that I don't think that was like, that was ever going to be sustainable. So seeing these things, uh, kind of seeing this distribution of talent and distribution of opportunity, I think is, is great in general. And, uh, you know, I recently, had, uh, Brian Rickwatts, uh, who's the founder of Latitude and, uh, was a big investor in Latin and, uh, and, you know, there are a lot of interesting fintech companies, which has come out of Latin America. Uh, do you see, uh, a major growth coming out of developing countries, uh, especially Southeast Asia and oh, yeah. Latin or, or developed? Yeah. So we, we had a very active Q1. And when I went back and did the numbers, half the deals that we did in Q1 of this year were overseas, um, heavily focused on Latin America and Southeast Asia. Uh, and so our, our view there, and this is part of our pitch when we raised the fund was, um, you know, we, we have all these kind of strong opinions on what's going to happen to financial services in the U S and how technology is going to be great and everything. But the other trend that we've seen developing is 500 FinTech was a global fund. We invested all over the world. Um, the other trend that, that we've been seeing is, um, you know, in these developing countries, you have, uh, generally young, growing, increasingly wealthy and increasingly educated populations that are digitally native. 
And unlike the US, there's not nearly as much kind of legacy infrastructure to build on top of, which just means that there's like, you have a ton of demand and then you have kind of a greenfield opportunity to build financial services from the ground up to meet that demand. Um, so we have, I think, three companies in the portfolio now that are in Latin America. We have one in Southeast Asia. We have one in India. Um, and uh, I think we may even have more. <laughs> you lose count after a while. But these are definitely areas of focus for us because we just feel like there's so much more opportunity to do interesting things without kind of being held back by the existing industry. Got it. Um, I just quickly want to do the top three. Uh, what's your favorite business book? My favorite business book? Um, the one that I recommend to my founders the most is called The Advantage. Um, I know there's all kinds of books about business and stuff that I think are interesting or whatever, but The Advantage, I think, has the has the advantage of being... Uh, it's about management and how to manage like high growth teams and how to manage culture within, within uh, kind of fast moving innovative organizations. And it's spot on. It's, it's a fairly short book. It's easily digestible. It's all actionable. And I think it's like, it's the number one book that I give every new founder who has to learn how to like build and manage an organization and hold people accountable, know how to communicate within an organization. Like all the things that I struggled with the most uh, and starting nerd wallet, um, and largely failing at, I think this was the best book I have found, uh, on, on dealing with those issues. It's called the advantage. The advantage. I will put that in the show notes. And, uh, you know, if you could go back in time when you started, uh, working on, uh, better tomorrow ventures, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? Um, you know, it's that's a hard question for me to answer because I think we got very lucky. I think we did a lot of things right. I'm sure we did a bunch of things wrong, but we also got very lucky. And so it's hard to say that like, it's hard to have regrets with the way that things panned out. Um, I think if anything, maybe we would have done this sooner. Like we let the 500 FinTech fund drag out for a long time. And then we spent a bunch of time like interviewing at other funds and stuff. And we probably should have just gotten off our asses and <laughs> started building BCV sooner. I think is the only thing that I would, would maybe do differently. Got it. And uh, do you have any favorite online tools, example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Um, all of the answers that come, immediately come to mind are uh, probably not particularly newer. Uh, interesting so like superhuman i spend 90 percent of my waking hours in superhuman um this means superhuman and twitter <laughs> like, those are the two tools i tend to i tend to use the most um oh the other one that that i'm a big fan of and i'm, I'm an investor here so i have to caveat this but uh company alto ira um especially nowadays with kind of biden's tax plan and stuff like that uh i think it's going to get a lot more popular um but i've i've traditionally done a lot of kind of private investing, um, out of my IRA. Um, and I was a customer of a few different other companies like Pensco and Millennium Trust and stuff like that. that are supposed to help you do these things, investing in hedge funds, VC funds, startups, stuff like that out of your IRA. And they're all terrible. And so I ended up investing in also a few years back because 
they were building basically like self-directed IRA 2.0. Um, and I was just obsessed with that idea. I was like, I need this for myself. I was their, actually their first beta tester. And to this day, like I buy Bitcoin in my IRA through Alto IRA. Like I've invested in some of my friends' VC funds through Alto IRA. Um, and uh, it's probably uh, the only like financial app even for me as a fintech investor, it's probably one of the only financial apps that I use on a like weekly or monthly basis. <laughs> Got it. I think I think that's a uh, that's a app which you know not many guests have talked about. We surely put that in the show notes. Uh, Jake, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about a better tomorrow ventures? Uh, generally, Twitter is where I spend most of my time. Um, so I'm at. I am Jake Stream. So that's I A M J A K E Stream. S T R E A M. Got it. Yeah, uh, we'll we'll put that in the in the show notes. Uh, Jake, thank you so much for taking our time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Yeah, likewise, man. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.